We'll be looking this evening just at the final two verses of Ephesians chapter 4. We've made it up to verse 31. We'll look at verse 31 and 32 this evening. I'll read, picking up, beginning in verse 17, and I'll read through the end of the chapter. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not, let the, do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his hands, with his own hands, what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. If we were just to go back to the very beginning of the Bible and start reading in Genesis chapter 1, it wouldn't take us long at all to get to the point where we realize how utterly devastating these kinds of sins are, the sins that Paul is outlining for us in verse 31, bitterness and wrath and anger. In fact, in just the first few several, verse, several chapters of Genesis, we find bitterness and wrath and anger giving way to murder. Murder in the same family, brother against brother. And really, the story of the scriptures from that point are on throughout the rest of the Bible, all the way up until glory, the new heavens and the new earth, what we find is a world devastated by these sins. Relationships that are utterly torn apart because of things like bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander along with all malice. And so when Paul tells us in verse 31, let all of these things be put away from you, what we should think is what a beautiful life that would be. What a beautiful world it would be where all of those sins were completely absent. 
and where a community of people lived, in the language of verse 31, with kindness and tenderheartedness toward one another. What a good world that would be. What a good family that would be. What good relationships would be characterized by the absence of verse 31 and the presence of verse 32. What a good church that would be. What a good world that will be one day when Christ returns. But Paul, in a sense, is urging us now to bring that future world into existence. We, as the church, are the new covenant community of God's people. We are his new creation. And what that means is that what is to come in the future has already started to take place now in us as the church. This future world where all of those things will be absent should already be true of us to a large degree as the new creation community of the redeemed. And so when Paul is urging us to put these things away and to put on kindness and tenderheartedness, what he's really saying is live as God's new creation. And that's consistent with everything that we've seen up to this point in chapter 4, especially since we've been in it the last few weeks and beginning in verse 17. This idea of the new walk that is appropriate for the new man. If you've been here the last several weeks, you've, or last few weeks, you've, you've hopefully will remember that we've been discussing this new man that we've become in Christ and the new walk that is fitting or appropriate for the new man that we've become in Christ. And we saw last week that as those who have been made new in Christ, as those who have put on the new man, not only should we generally turn away from the old walk, but Paul lays out specific ways that our life should be marked by new habits that are appropriate to the new man. And we saw last week that it's not this this Christian life, this striving to be holy, it's not only about laying aside the bad habits that were appropriate for the old man, but true holiness looks also like taking on new habits that are appropriate to the new man. And so take your mind back a week and several verses to verse 25, where Paul says, laying aside falsehood. And then in verse 26, laying aside sinful anger. And then in verse 28, laying aside stealing. And then in verse 29, laying aside unwholesome speech. Lay all of those things aside because those are appropriate to the old man. But you're a new man who has been created as a new creature in Christ in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And as the new man, you lay aside all of those things, but then we saw we also replace them. We lay aside falsehood, but we replace them with truth. That's what the new man looks like, truth. We lay aside sinful anger and we replace sinful anger with righteous anger. We lay aside stealing and we replace it with hard work and generosity. We lay aside unwholesome speech and we replace it with edifying and gracious speech. In our fight to be like Christ, there must be not only a putting to death of sin, but there must be a bringing to life of righteousness, a cultivation of what is good. If your Christian life looks primarily like don't, 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 as I mentioned last week, You've only got half of the story. The Christian life is not just about don't, 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 don't. The Christian life is is about put on, put on, put on, put on righteousness, put on love, put on all of the things that are consistent with the new man that you've become in Christ. 
And so that's what Paul has been saying up to this point in chapter 4. The old man has been crucified. We have become new in Christ, and we're now to walk in this new manner of life with new habits that are according to that new man. He continues that theme in verses 31 and 32. On the one hand, there's the put-aside aspect of it, but then there's also the take-up side of it. You put away on the one hand all of the vices that are listed in verse 31, but you take up, you put on, you clothe yourself with the traits that are listed in verse 32. So the sermon this evening is very simple, two points. The first one is verse 31, put away all malice. Verse 31, put away all malice. And then verse 32, put on kindness, tenderness, and forgiveness. Put on kindness, tenderness, and forgiveness. So the first point is, verse 31, put away all malice. Read that verse with me again. Verse 31 says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all all malice. So I've said it now about three or four times. The title for this point is put away all malice. But if you look at the verse, malice is just one of the traits, the the negative traits listed there. So I could have theoretically chosen put away all bitterness because that's another trait there. I could have chosen put away all slander or all clamor or any of the others, but I've chosen put away all malice as the title for this first section. And there's a reason for that. The reason is, as you notice, even in the, in the structure of the sentence, malice is listed separately. It's listed last of all. And it's stated along with all malice. And when Paul is using malice there, what I think he's doing, and it seems to be the case that many commentators agree with that, is he seems to be summarizing the category in general. In a sense, this word malice encompasses all of the other negative traits that he lists, and it expands it to include anything he may have forgotten. So let me put it into a sentence structure that's in a different context, but will hopefully communicate something of the idea. Imagine that I tell you, let all apples and bananas and oranges and peaches and strawberries be put away from you along with all fruit. Fruit is the main category. All the other individual fruits I've listed, but just in case I've forgotten any other fruits that fit that category, put them all away. I think that's Paul's point when he uses malice. He's saying, everything I've mentioned and anything that fits this category that I may have left out that falls under the the description of malice, put it all away from you. Malice refers to evil intent toward others. It's anything that has to do with wishing evil on someone or having a spiteful or mean-spiritedness toward them. And notice that Paul doesn't just say put malice away, but he says put it all away, all malice. And, And all there, it's both with regard to measure and type. Put all measures of malice away from you and put all type of malice away from you. Any hint of it, any degree of it, put it away from you. Any form of it, any kind of it, put it away from you. Evil intent should have nothing to do with the heart of the Christian. 
Even the word he uses there, the phrase to put away, that implies complete removal. It's the same word Jesus uses in Matthew 24, where he's describing the end of the age, the coming of Christ, and he says, it'll be like in the days of Noah, before the flood. They were eating and they were drinking, Jesus says, they were marrying, they were giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand, and then he says, until the flood came and took them all away. That word or phrase, took them all away, that's the same phrase here, put away. The idea is the flood came and it swept away everything in its path. And Paul is saying, sweep it all away from you. Every hint of it. Have nothing to do with this malice and anything that fits the category of it. So the phrase, along with all malice then, is intended to be very comprehensive, complete. He's essentially saying, put all these specific sins away that I've listed in the first part of uh, verse 31. If I've forgotten anything that comes to mind that fits the category of malice, whatever else might align in some way with evil intent of the heart, in any measure, whether small or great, whatever measure, whatever kind of malice you might have in your heart, let it all be swept away like the flood, like like all that was swept away in the waters of the flood. Have nothing to do with it. So then what are the specific fruits, we could say, or the specific sins that fit the category of malice. Well, Paul lists five of them, and they fall down into two primary categories, the beginning of verse 31. Three of them have to do with sins of the heart, primarily, and two of them have to do with sins of the mouth. They all fit this category of malice. Three of them have to do with sins of the heart. Two of them have to do with sins of the heart, uh, sorry, of the mouth. Sins of the heart are bitterness, wrath, and anger. The sins of the mouth are clamor and slander. So the sins of the heart, anger, wrath, bitterness. Bitterness, wrath, anger. Bitterness. What is bitterness? It's been defined as a smoldering resentment, an unwillingness to forgive, or a harsh feeling. Smoldering resentment. Or it's also been described as a feeling of ongoing animosity, persistent animosity toward another person. Or it has been described as actively keeping a record of wrongs at the front of your mind when you think of that person. Bitterness. It can spring up for a number of reasons. It may be that we feel bitter, either rightly or wrongly, because we feel like we've been Sorry, you will never feel rightly bitter, but we may feel bitter because we have been wronged, and we may feel like we've been wronged, either rightly or wrongly. But either way, bitterness often begins with a feeling of having been wronged by somebody. That's where it starts. Or it may be that someone else has disappointed us. They haven't measured up to what we hoped for them. They haven't met our expectations, and in our disappointment, bitterness starts to creep in. Or it may be that we think someone has received treatment that we deserve, and we think we've been treated unfairly. Someone else has gotten what I should have gotten. Say at work, this person got the raise that I should have gotten, or this person gets the attention that I should get. And the envy and jealousy, it can begin to produce bitterness in the heart. And almost always, we feel justified in our bitterness because we believe that it was provoked 
by a real offense or by a legitimate failure or unfairness. We almost always feel justified in our bitterness. And it almost always involves a harsh and judgmental spirit. Bitterness almost always involves a judgmentalism, a sense of superiority toward others. I know how things should be done, and therefore I'm resentful toward others when they don't do things the way that I know it should be done. And that can create bitterness in our heart, and bitterness is consuming. Hebrews 12 says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Bitterness never stays contained in one little area of the heart. If it's not dealt with, it always spreads, it suffocates our hearts, and it ruins our relationships, and it defiles our view of God, it steals us of our our joy and our peace and our delight in God and in relationships with others. It is suffocating, and it will suffocate your spiritual life if bitterness is left undealt with. And so Paul is saying, sweep it all away. Have nothing to do with a bitter spirit. And then the other sins of the heart are wrath and anger. Last week we considered the topic of anger, and we saw that there, in verses 26 and 27, that there is a way to be righteously anger, angry, and there is a way to be sinfully angry. There is a sense in which it is appropriate for a Christian to be angry. His heart should be energized to defend what is good and righteous and energized to protect those who are abused or mistreated or victims of, uh, of, of crimes or sins of any sort. We should be energized to want to defend what is good and eradicate what is evil. That's righteous anger centered on God's glory and the good of his creation. But then there's sinful anger. And sinful anger is energized by selfish desires. It puts me at the center and is fueled by a sense of me not getting what I want. And that's, that's sinful anger. It lacks self-control and it's not governed by love. So there's a difference between righteous anger and sinful anger. Obviously, Paul here is speaking about sinful anger. Put away all sinful wrath and anger. And those two words are essentially synonymous with one another, wrath and anger. They both have to do with this idea of a heart that is provoked to enmity and hostility or, or, or to violent passion. A heart that is roused to be violently aggressive toward another person. That's anger or wrath. And often we think of it in terms of outward expression, primarily or even exclusively sometimes. We may think of anger primarily in how it's expressed outwardly. I saw uh, last week or maybe the week before, maybe some of you saw it as well, a tennis player who in, in a tie-breaking uh, game got, got so upset that he took his tennis racket, slammed it on the ground like 20 times, and shattered it. He walked over to the sideline, grabbed another tennis racket, slammed it on the ground and shattered it, and grabbed another tennis racket and slammed it on the ground and shattered it. Three different times. When I think of anger, that's where my mind goes, is that guy slamming his tennis racket. Uh, Or for those of you who play golf, slamming a golf club. Never done it in my life, but some of you have. And that's anger. That's what we think about. But anger of the heart is just as sinful. And if we think of anger only in terms of how it's expressed outwardly, and we don't get serious about dealing with anger in the heart, then we're allowing a very damaging sin to set in. Anger has to do with the condition 
of the heart. The heart can be radically provoked to anger, and our face can be dead straight. And God is not pleased by that. And again, as with bitterness, so also in our wrath and our anger, we almost always feel justified in it. Even if it's sinful anger, we feel justified. We convince ourselves, I'm only angry because this person treated me this way. Or I'm only angry, I'm only hostile toward them because they were hostile toward me. I'm justified in my hostility. Jerry Bridges reminds us, helpfully, in facing up to our anger, we need to realize that no one else causes us to be angry. Someone else's words or actions may become the occasion of our anger, but the cause lies deep within us. Usually, our pride, selfishness, or desire to control. Someone else cannot make you sinfully angry. What is in your heart makes you sinfully angry, and what someone else does just provides the occasion for it to be manifested. So those are the sins of malice that have to do with the heart, bitterness, wrath, and anger. Then Paul moves on to sins that have to do with the mouth. He says in the second part of the verse, He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger, and then he goes on, and clamor and slander be put away from you. Basically, these are the sins that result when we don't deal with the sins of our hearts. Bitterness and and anger and wrath that have taken root in the heart, when they're left undealt with, they will eventually bubble up and express themselves through our mouth. Jesus taught us that principle when he said, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Whatever's in your, ha- whatever's in your heart, that's, that's what comes out of your mouth. Your mouth doesn't say something that wasn't in your heart first. And, and so when we speak clamor and, 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 uh, and slander, it's because the bitterness and anger and wrath in our hearts is bubbling up and coming out and is no longer contained. Clamor literally means crying, screaming, or shouting, picture two-year-old temper tantrum. One commentator, he defined it as loud outcries of anger, brawling, angry bickering, or shouting down another person. In other words, clamor has to do with heated anger that rises up in the moment, and that anger as it consumes us, it manifests itself in outbursts of speech. Volcanic type eruption of anger in the heart that can't be contained there any longer, and it comes out of the mouth in clamor. It could include shouting at one another, but it could also simply be unbridled words that come spewing out of our mouth in the heat of the moment. Words intended to pierce and crush and destroy and do damage to the person that we're speaking to. It could look like making quick, sharp, sarcastic comments in the middle of a conversation to shut someone down. It could be angrily talking over someone just to make sure they have no opportunity to fit in a word into the sentence or defend themselves. In the heat of an argument, clamor could be angrily pulling up old sins and putting them back on top of someone just to open up old wounds. We lose control. That's the idea. In our anger, we lose control, and whatever's in our heart just comes out of our mouth. And then he says, slander. He says, put away clamor and slander. In his book, again, to quote, Jeremy, uh, to quote Jerry Bridges, in his book, Respectable Sins, he says, slander is making a false statement 
or misrepresentation about another person that defames or damages the person's reputation. Making a false statement or misrepresentation about another person that defames or damages the person's reputation. So it could be a completely false statement, a lie about the person intended to destroy their reputation, or it could be a statement with a hint of truth that's twisted and misused in order to misrepresent and mispersonify the person. And either way, it's slander. In his book, I'll continue to, to quote Jerry Bridges, he makes a couple helpful applications and gives some specific examples of what slander might look like. He says, slander is when we ascribe wrong motives to people, even though we can't see their hearts or know their particular circumstances. And he says, slander is when we misrepresent a person's position on a subject without first determining what that person's position really is. We see that all the time in politics, don't we? I mean, well, we see slander all the time in politics, but especially as we get close to elections and these misrepresentations of the opposite party, taking one line here or one line there and just completely twisting it and misrepresenting everything that they stand for. Slander, he says, Jerry Bridges, he says, is when we blow out of proportion another person's sin and make that person appear to be more sinful than he or she really is. Again, slander begins in the heart. Talking to others about someone in a way that damages them, spreading rumors and, and gossip in a way that ruins someone's rep uh, reputation and misrepresents their character, all of that is a sin that begins in the heart. Our bitterness and our anger towards someone, they, they begin to grab hold of our hearts and they overflow in evil speech about the person that we're embittered toward. And if, if we're only dealing with slander, if, if, we're, if we're only focusing on what our mouths say, then we're not actually getting to the root cause of what our mouths say. We're not actually getting to the source of the slander. The slander starts with a heart that is embittered, that is angry, that is wrathful, and is, that, is, that is looking for vengeance and revenge. And so dealing with the heart is exactly where Paul takes us next. If you think about it, think about the damage that is done by the sins he's just mentioned. Think about clamor. Think about years of trust in a relationship that can be radically damaged in the span of a 30-second, careless, angry comment. Think about slander, relationships that can be ripped apart. Think about anger and wrath and the damage that is done when we don't keep guard on it. Paul wants us to deal with the heart. And the way we deal with our heart is by following the commands of verse 32, not just putting away all of the malice that's there, but positively turning to kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. So verse 31, it tells us to put off, to put away all malice. Verse 32 tells us to put on kindness, tenderness, and forgiveness. Be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. These three instructions in verse 32, if you could paint two completely opposite pictures of the heart, these would be those two pictures. An angry, embittered heart and a kind and gracious heart. They are as different, in fact, and this is Paul's point, they are as different as the old man is from the new man. That's how different they are. 
He's saying make a complete 180 turn from all that is categorized as malice. Turn away from it completely because all of that belongs to the old man. And turn instead to what's true of the new man. Kindness, tenderness, forgiveness. So first, he says be kind. Be kind to one another. We're told often in the New Testament that the Christian is to be kind. In 1 Corinthians 13, one of the first characteristics mentioned of love is that it's kind. We're told in 2 Timothy that the bondservant of the Lord must be kind, not quarrelsome, but kind to all. And in Titus 2, as Paul is giving instruction to wives, we're told that wives should cultivate in the home an atmosphere of kindness. The best example and the, best, the clearest teaching on kindness, I think, is found in Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6 and verse 35, I'll just read it. You don't have to turn there. It's a familiar verse, I think. But it's a clear, very helpful description of what it looks like to be kind. Jesus says, Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. It's the same word. Kind to ungrateful and evil men. Alexander Strauch, he, he defines kindness as a readiness to do good, to help, to relieve burdens, to be useful, to serve, to be tender, to be sympathetic to others, even to people who criticize, antagonize, and oppose. And that fits Jesus' description pretty well. A readiness to do good even to those who criticize, antagonize, and oppose. That's what it is to be kind. And he's telling us we should love our enemies. We should do good to those who don't do any good to us. We should lend to those who have no means of paying us back, or if they have means, they have no intention of ever paying us back. We should do good. We should be kind because this is the way that God himself is kind toward ungrateful and evil and rebellious men. And Jesus is saying that's how we should treat our enemies. This kindness should be given to our enemies. How much more then, within the body of Christ, Paul is saying be kind to one another as believers, one believer to another. We're not enemies. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And so if we're to be kind to our enemies, how much more should the atmosphere of a local church and the church universal be characterized by kindness toward one another? Even when that kindness isn't reciprocated. And then he says, kindness is to be joined together with tenderheartedness. The word for tenderhearted there can be translated compassionate. It's the same word, same root word at least, used to describe Jesus on a number of occasions in the Gospels. For example, in Matthew chapter 9, we read that Jesus saw the people and he felt compassion. Same word for tenderhearted, or tenderheartedness, it's the same root word for, for, the, for the word here in Ephesians. Tenderheartedness. He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. We read the same thing in Mark chapter 1 where Jesus heals the leper and we read he was moved with compassion. Same word. Tenderheartedness. He was moved with compassion and he stretched out his hand and he touched him and he said to him, I will be well. Be cleansed. That's what it looks like to be tender-hearted. Jesus, as he roamed the earth and saw multitudes of broken people in distress and affliction, he was never unmoved by their circumstances. He didn't ever just walk by, give a quick glance at some hurting person, 
and then very quickly move on to the next important thing he had. Instead, he considered the condition of the broken, the hurting, the needy. He thought about their needs. He sympathized with them in their distress and their discouragement, and his heart was moved to tenderness for them, compassion. Jesus is, he continues to be for us today, a tender-hearted Savior who is moved and touched with the infirmities, the weaknesses, the needs of his people. And Paul is saying we must follow Jesus' example. We should allow ourselves to be moved with the affliction and the distress of others, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ, to sympathize with them, to attempt to feel something of what they're feeling, to know something of what they're going through so that we can be present for them in the way that they need us to be. And then added to kindness and tenderheartedness, he adds forgiveness. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, and then Paul says, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Who's Paul writing to in the letter of Ephesians? He's writing to the Ephesians, and they're Christians, at least those who are reading the letter. Paul's writing to Christians. He's writing to a community of believers. And when he says, forgiving one another, that one another means he's talking about Christians forgiving other Christians. Have I lost anybody on that point? That's pretty straightforward, right? Pretty basic. But it reminds us of something very important. For forgiveness to be required, it's assumed that an offense has been committed. And the New Testament writers, inspired by the Holy Spirit, they assumed and they anticipated that believers in the church were going to be hurt by one another. They were going to be sinned against. They were going to feel offended by other Christians at times, in the same church, in the same body even. And that sort of outlook is helpful because it's very realistic And it reminds us that if we feel offended, our situation's not unique. I'm not the only Christian, not me personally, figuratively me. I'm not the only Christian in the history of the church who has felt hurt by another Christian. That's helpful to remember. I'm not the only one who has had a complaint against another believer. My situation is not unique. In fact, it's pretty safe to assume, speaking only for myself at this point, that If I have a complaint against someone else, the complaints against me probably match the same number of complaints I have against anyone else. If we feel hurt by others, it's probably safe to assume we've also hurt, even unknowingly, others and offended. Forgiveness is a requirement in the life of the church, not the exception. An ideal church is not the church where sin is never committed. Well, in one sense, that is the ideal church. That's heaven. But the real church is the church where sin's are committed, where people say selfish things to one another, and they act in prideful ways, and they're not considerate, and they do things that hurt one another. That's, that's the real church that we live in. And that church, if it's going to survive and flourish and be fruitful in the grace of Christ, needs to be a church that is marked by forgiveness. Paul is dealing here with the condition of our hearts once again, with the inward component of forgiveness. At the heart level, independent of any other factors, independent of the behavior of anybody else, there must be a willingness in our heart to forgive, to put away thoughts of revenge, to put away hostility and enmity, 
to, to not desire harm to those that harm us, and to be eager and willing to be reconciled and restored. He's dealing with the inward component of the heart, a heart that is eager to be reconciled. That's not harboring anger and vengeance toward our offenders. Here's how Thomas Watson describes forgiveness at the heart level. He says, Forgiveness is when we strive against all thoughts of revenge, when we will not do our enemies mischief, but wish well to them, grieve at their calamities, pray for them, seek reconciliation with them, and show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them. This is gospel forgiving. Of course, when I say that, that forgiveness is an eagerness to be reconciled, it's a putting away of all vengeance, hostility, enmity. When we talk about forgiveness in those terms, we're not necessarily saying that forgiveness always equals reconciliation and restoration. There is a difference between the two. Depending on the nature of the sin that's been committed, even if we have forgiven someone at the heart level, reconciliation and restoration of the relationship may very well not be possible until there is real confession and real repentance and a real turning away from that sin on the part of the offender. The relationship can't begin to be healed or restored in any real sense when it's been severely damaged by sin until there's recognition and a turning away from the sin that's caused that damage on the part of the offender. And also, forgiveness does not mean that the relationship necessarily goes back to the way things used to be. Doesn't mean we pretend like nothing happened. If someone steals my money, someone robs me, and they're, I I don't know, and I know who it is, I must forgive them. I must. I have no option. The Bible gives me no way out of that. I must forgive them. I cannot hold that sin over his head so that the relationship has no possibility of ever being restored in any way. I can't do that. God gives me no option for that but I'm not going to give him my wallet ever again. Trust has been lost. If someone commits a crime against me, I will forgive him. I I will desire redemption. But I also expect there to be the appropriate consequences for his sin. If someone harms me, misuses my trust, I must genuinely work hard by the grace of Christ not to allow their sin to make me not love them. I can't do it. The Bible leaves no room for that. But I may never trust them again. I can love them. I can forgive them. doesn't necessarily mean the relationship is going to be restored to all that it used to be. But Paul's point here is simply this. We, have, we, we, we never have any right at all in the Scriptures to stubbornly withhold forgiveness from anyone, no matter what they've done. But instead, we must do everything we can in the grace of Christ, by his enablement, to move past the offense and not resentfully dwell on it and despise the other person because of it, because of their sin against us. We must forgive, Paul says. And we must do this because all of us, if we are in Christ, have been forgiven of a debt far greater than any debt of sin or offense owed to us, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. That completely removes every exception that we could make. Every excuse is taken out of the way. Well, you don't know what they've done to me. You don't know how severe their sin was. It wasn't as severe as our sin against our God. And Paul is saying, just as God in Christ has forgiven you, in that same way, you must forgive 
one another. Over and over again, the New Testament motivates us and inspires us and empowers us to forgive through the reminder of how much we've been forgiven. Over and over again. When Paul says that in Christ, God has forgiven you, that phrase, in Christ, it reminds us of the cost that was paid for your forgiveness. In Christ, you were forgiven. That means in Christ's death for you. That means when Christ took the debt of your sin upon himself and completely drank the cup of God's wrath and quenched it on your behalf, that was the payment made. In Christ tells us the price that was paid for us. And at the same time, the phrase, in Christ, in Christ God has forgiven you, it also reminds us of how freely we've been forgiven. It's a great cost, but it's also given to us freely. He's not forgiven us because of any payments we could make or have made or ever would make. He's not forgiven us because of our efforts to make things right. He certainly hasn't forgiven us because of the quality of our repentance. He's forgiven us in Christ. That moves the basis for our forgiveness completely away from us and puts it completely on another. The basis, the grounds, the entire foundation of your forgiveness is found in Christ not in you. It's free forgiveness. We haven't had to work for it, which means we don't require that others have to work before we have, at the heart level, a willingness to forgive. And it also, this phrase, in Christ, it implies fullness of forgiveness. It reminds us of the cost. It reminds us that it's free to us, but it also reminds us of the fullness, the completeness of the forgiveness. When we are said to be in Christ, it means we are completely hidden in him. It means that all hint of God's wrath, all hint of his punishment, has completely passed over us forever because we are in the refuge of Christ. We are clothed with him. We are hidden entirely from the punishment that our sin deserves. It is a complete and full forgiveness because we are in Christ. And so Paul is saying our forgiveness must be full and complete. Not ignoring the consequences, but at the heart level, all resentment, all bitterness, all hatred, all hostility must fully be removed. A willingness to forgive and be reconciled. That's the pattern given to us. And it's by dwelling upon and cultivating a thankfulness for God's forgiveness to us in Christ. It's, it's by having our hearts saturated with the reality of Christ's forgiveness that we will find ourselves enabled to forgive. It's when our minds are thankful, our hearts are thankful with the depth of the forgiveness God has given us that we will find ourselves able to extend forgiveness to those who have hurt us. And on the other hand, an unwillingness to forgive and a stubborn refusal to let go of revengeful thoughts towards others is a sign that we've either never known real forgiveness or we've forgotten it. If we find our hearts unwilling to forgive, it's because we have either never known the grace of Christ or because we are not living in the light of it. Forgiveness is not easy. No one has ever promised that forgiveness would be easy. And we will all struggle in some measure and at certain times with unforgiveness, this battle against an unforgiving heart. But we must never be okay with it. We must never settle for unforgiveness. If forgiveness feels this evening like too much for you, 
If kindness and tenderheartedness toward those who have offended you feels like something far beyond anything you're able to do, any, anything you would ever be able to extend toward the person that has harmed you, then travel back to the cross and consider the kindness of Jesus for you. Consider his tender-hearted compassion for you. He still feels your weaknesses today as your high priest. In love and in compassion, he came to take your burden upon himself, and he continues to know your burden and to feel it along with you. Then consider the debt of sin that has been paid on your behalf, even when you are still the enemy of Christ. Go back to the cross, think about the fullness of your forgiveness and the tender-hearted kindness of our Savior, and dwell there for a while, and pray that God would soften your heart toward those who have harmed you. I trust that as we live in the shadow of the cross, as we try to warm our hearts up in the light of Christ's forgiveness toward us, we'll find it increasingly easier to extend forgiveness to those who harm us. I think that the Holy Spirit will give us gracious hearts the more that we meditate upon, delight in, and worship God for his grace toward us in Christ. I pray that he would do that, and I trust that he will. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that we don't have to live according to the ways of the old man in things like bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice. We thank you that you've set us free from the bondage of those sins for all who are in Christ, and you've made us new so that we might walk in the far more pleasant realities of kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiveness, graciousness. Father, we thank you that you have rescued us and redeemed us, that we might be more and more like Christ. And we pray that you would help us to look more like our tender-hearted Savior. Help us to extend forgiveness, even when it's hard. We pray that as we meditate upon your forgiveness toward us in Christ, we would find our own hearts stirred to extend the same grace to others. We need your help for that. We certainly need the help of your Holy Spirit to let go of our pride, to extend humble and gracious forgiveness. We pray that you would help us for Christ's sake and for your glory and for the sake of the health of our church and relationships with those that we know and our families and friends. God, for the sake of all that is pleasing to Christ, we pray that you would help us. In his name, amen.